Let's look in our Bibles this evening to the book of Jeremiah, to chapter 17. This past Sunday, I spoke on the matter of sin, and uh, again, I want to do that this evening. It is a, a doctrine that many seem to avoid, do not want to hear anything about sin, it seems like, in our generation, but as I mentioned this past Sunday, the Bible has much to say concerning the matter of sin from Genesis through Revelation. You continually read about this matter of sin. It would be difficult, if not impossible, to even to deal with the things of Jesus Christ and to preach Jesus Christ without also dealing with the matter of sin. He came into the world to save his people from their sins, and he put away their sins by the sacrifice of himself, as we saw uh, this past Sunday. But men today, as in every generation, think very little of sin, seem to have no concern about the matter of sin. I've heard I guess Christian people, I suppose they were, making their plans to violate the word of God and they'll say something to the effect, well, I'm sure God will understand. Well, I'm sure he will, but not in the matter that they may, may think. God understands sin, no matter where it is or who does commit it. It's important that we not only preach against sin, but we must also preach and teach about sin. That's two different subjects all, all together. And when we deal with sin, we have to remember the definition of sin, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But I want us to read from Jeremiah chapter 17. I'm going to begin in verse 1. Jeremiah 17, verse 1, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars. Whilst their children remember their altars and their groves by the green trees upon the high hills. O oh, my mountain in the field, I will give thy substance and all thy treasures to the spoil and thy high places for sin throughout all thy borders. And thou even thyself shall discontinue from thine inheritance that I gave thee. And I will cause thee to serve thine enemies in the land which thou knowest not. For ye have kindled a fire in mine anger, which shall burn forever. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when, when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land and not inhabited. 
Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaves shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways, and according to the fruit of his doings. As we deal with the matter of sin, I'm going to, if you might hold your place here, I'll come back after a while to this text. But I'm going to 1 John in chapter 3. And I, I mentioned this as we spoke about sin, but just the definition of sin once again. We read in 1 John chapter 3 and in verse 4, Whosoever committeth sin transgresses also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. Every transgression of the law is sin. Sin is the transgression of the law. But what does it mean? To transgress the law. What does that mean? Many times we might use the phrase of somebody breaking the law. Well, God's law is not going to be broken. It stays intact. We violate the law. The scriptural term is the transgression of the law. But within this meaning, it we're given in 1 John 3 and in verse 4, is the matter of lawlessness. Lawlessness. A total disregard for God's law. Everyone, we could read this in verse 4 and understand it this way. Everyone that practices sin also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. That's what the transgression of the law is it is lawlessness being void of law by nature all men are are sinners disobedient to god by nature all men are just like pharaoh was many years ago when he asked that question who is the lord that i should obey his voice again god has given his law and whether it's stated or not, it's in the mind of sinners when they transgress the law of God as if to say, who are you to tell me what to do? Man by nature wants his own way. And sin is a total disregard of the divine standard of God. When God gave the law on Sinai, he set the moral standard, a holy standard for man. He gave the law, and sin is the transgression of the law. But man by nature prefers lawlessness. 
They do not want a law. They do not want anything governing their life. Or else they want to establish their own standard and totally disregard God's standard. And that's where we are in our generation, and I'm sure generations before us, and if the Lord does not come, generations after us, men will continue to establish their own standards of right and wrong, what is good and what is evil. I think I've told you this before. When I was young, being taught in a Sunday school class in a Southern Baptist church, I was taught that if you know something is, is wrong and you go ahead and do it, then it's sin. But if that same action, you do not think that action is wrong and you go ahead and do it, it's not sin. It just depends on whether you think it's right or wrong and therefore you're able to Set your own standard of what is right and wrong. I won't turn there, but back in the book of Judges, in chapter 17 and in verse 6, the Bible says that at that time there was no king, there was no ruler in Israel, so everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. They set their own standard. They're, they're the ones that determine what is right and what is wrong. Another thing I've heard many times is, well, if an action or words or whatever does not harm anyone else, then it's not sin. That is an absurd thing. It is a total disregard of God's law and God's standard. It is a transgression of the law. But people seem to have the idea that the matter of sin is something that is relative and not something that is really set in concrete, that is definite. Again, you, you determine for yourself what is right and, and what is wrong. There are some even among, among Christians, and it seems like they may have good intentions, but they would like to set standards for you. They may have the idea that this is right and that is wrong, and they want to set a standard and tell you what you should do and what you should not do, not based upon Scripture, but upon their personal thoughts and feelings. I just refer to these as modern-day legalistic Pharisees. It can tell us what we should do and what we should not do, not having any scripture to, to substantiate it, but just what they think is right or wrong. In the book of Matthew and in chapter 13, excuse me, Matthew 23, Matthew and in chapter, chapter 23, I want to read verses 1 through verse 5. Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. 
but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. Love the utter, uppermost rooms at the feast and chief seats in the synagogues, greetings in the markets, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Again, setting standards. Men setting standards. You might remember, and I won't turn there, but in Mark chapter 7 and in verse 7, Jesus said, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. And that's where many are to, today. But God is the lawgiver and not man. We, we cannot make laws. God is the lawgiver. It's our role to obey the law. And certainly we ought to obey God rather than man. Back in the book of Exodus, I'm going to read the commandments that were given. It's in Exodus and in chapter 20. Exodus and in chapter 20. And I want you to pay attention to what we read. Notice the words that we read, and I'll mention why in just a moment. In Matthew chapter 20, now begin in verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the Sabbath day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. 
Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not cover, covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Now, keeping that in mind, go with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew and in chapter 22. And here I'd like to read verse 34 through verse 40. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law. And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now something to notice. When Jesus was asked, which is the great commandment in the law in verse 36? The words of his answer are not found in Exodus 20. When you read the Ten Commandments back in Exodus 20, you do not find these words. The question was, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. But those words are not recorded in Exodus in chapter 20. But he said this is the first and great commandment. Then he said in verse 39, The second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Those words are not found in Exodus and in chapter 20. Now, if you look in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 6, verse 5, you'll, you'll find that, Leviticus chapter 19 and in verse 8. But why did Jesus give such an answer? Which is the great commandment in the law? Well, we have the Ten Commandments, which is the great one. Well, he said, verse 37, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Then he spoke about the second commandment in verse 39. 
Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus' answer, and certainly his answer was correct. It'd be a fool to say his answer was wrong. But he is simply giving a summation of the law. Those ten commandments can be divided into the two tables. It is one unit. The law is one unit. But it's divided into two sections. One in relation to God and one in relation man to man. Now when you read read uh, Exodus in chapter 20, God gave the law. Jesus summarized it with these two things recorded in Matthew chapter 23. One, and first of all, is in relation to God. You go back and read in Exodus 20, the first of the commandments has to do with man's relationship to God. Then you read further in Exodus 20, you read about man's relationship to other individuals. But the law is one unit. It's one unit with two sections. Now, keep that in mind and go with me to the book of James and in chapter 2. James and in chapter 2. And we'll read a verse that you all should be familiar with. James in chapter 2 and at verse 10. James did write, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. And when you read that, you ought to ask, why? Why is it if you just offend in one point, you're guilty of transgressing the whole law? That's because God's law is one singular unit, one complete unit. It has several parts, but it's always viewed as one unit. And if you offend in one, then you transgress the whole law. You might liken it. You remember, I won't turn there, but in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 through verse 30, is what is commonly called uh, God's golden chain of grace. You can go back and read that where you have one thing stated, it leads to something else, that leads to something else. There's five different points there, but it's all one, one unit. And if just one of those things recorded in Romans 8, 29 and verse 30 was to fail, the whole thing fails. That's why it's likened unto a chain. The golden chain of, of, of grace. It begins in foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. And it would not matter which one of those failed. If one fails, it all fails. I'm sure all of you at one time or another have been associated with somebody using a, a regular chain that you'd normally think of, trying to pull something that was heavy. And the chain breaks. But most of the time, it's just one link that broke. But we say the chain broke. The whole chain, we say, we view it as being broken 
simply because one link broke. And so it is with God's law and what James is saying here in James 2 and in verse 10, whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. It does not matter which point it may may be. And I've mentioned this, I think, before. If someone were to hang you over a tall building but with a chain and that chain was to snap, it wouldn't matter to you which link it was. The chain broke. The chain broke. And you, you fall. It only takes one link. And James said, offend in one point, you're guilty of all. You remember in Romans, in, in chapter 3 and in verse 23, the Bible says all sinned, all transgressed, all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone born in the, from Adam's fall till now, born into this world, are born in sin. All have sinned. Look in Romans in chapter 3. Guilty is the verdict that's been pronounced upon all of the human race. Guilty. In Romans in chapter 3, now read verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may be guilty before God. God, the righteous, holy judge, has pronounced the world, all the inhabitants, guilty before God. And again, remember the words of James. Just offend in one point. Just one point. And you're guilty of transgressing the law. Now I'm going back to where we began in Jeremiah chapter 17. Verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars. Now, there are several things to consider just in that statement. Why would it require a pen of iron with the point of a diamond to write something upon the heart if it was not a hardened heart? Years ago when I was in Egypt, I went into several burial tombs and saw the hieroglyphics on the walls and a lot of it was painted with some kind of paint. I don't know what they used, but some of it was still bright color. Some of it had been faded. But there was also a lot of it that was etched into the stone. Some of it on the inside tomb, some of it on outside, on monuments. They would, the writings, the hieroglyphics would not be painted, but cut into the stone. And I've often thought about that. What, it, what instrument it would take 
to engrave, carve those hieroglyphics in those hard stones. And they did that where it would, would stand the test of, of time. And they have. You can go there now and that writing is still etched in the stone. And I don't know uh, exactly how it was done, but yet it would have required a very hard instrument to write in that stone those Egyptian monuments. Well, when I read Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 1, I see basically the same thing. The hearts of the people of Judah were as hard as rock. But the law of God was written, rather the sin of, of Judah was written upon their hearts with a pen of iron, the point of a diamond. There are several things that are, are pointed out here. If you notice the latter part of verse 1, it is a reference to their altars, to their religion. God condemned it. God wrote the sin there. They could deny the sin all they wanted to, but God had written their sin with this pen of iron, the point of a diamond, and is graven upon the table of their heart and also upon their, their religion. In verse 2, whilst their children remember their altars and their groves by the green trees upon the high hills, they had forsaken the true worship of God they had set up their own altars and idols in these groves and were worshiping them. And what was true of Judah then is still true of sinners today. Hardened hearts and defiled religion. The Bible speaks about hearts of stone and, and stony hearts. The hardness of men's hearts. Look in the book of Zechariah and in chapter 7. In Zechariah and in chapter 7, I'm going to read verse 8 through verse 12. And the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment and show mercy and compassions every man to his brother. And oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor. And let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. But they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts has sent in his spirit by the former prophets. Therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. Now notice the first part of verse 12. Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone said to be one of the hardest stones that there is, an adamant stone. In Ezekiel, if you want to look there, 
in Ezekiel and in chapter 3, verse 9 says, As an adamant harder than flint have I made thy forehead. Tell you something about the hardness of the, the adamant stone. The heart of stone. In the book of Hebrews, I won't turn there, but in chapter 3 and in verse 12, the Bible speaks about an evil heart of unbelief. It's hard. A hard, cold, stony heart. It brings the question, is there any hope for such a sin-cursed people who have made their hearts as an adamant stone? That heart. Required the writing of their sin as we read in Jeremiah with that pen of iron and point of a diamond. Is there any hope? Is there any escape from that dreadful condition? Well, we know that there is. But it's only through the miraculous work of God. It's only through the grace of God. In Jeremiah chapter 17, in verse 5 through verse 6, to sum it up is, don't trust yourself. Don't put trust in yourself or any other man. In verse 7 and verse 8, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. I'm sure you all remember this. In December of 1963, a surgeon in South Africa named Christian Bernard was said to perform the first heart transplant. And that was big news, a heart transplant. But you know, that was not anything new with God. God had been performing heart transplants for generations. From the days of righteous Abel until today. In Ezekiel, I'll go there again. In Ezekiel in chapter 11, God performs heart transplants. If you're saved, he performed a heart transplant on you. By nature, you had one of those stony hearts. Adamant stone hearts. What do you have now? What kind of heart do you have now? Ezekiel and in chapter 11, verse 19, And I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, and will give them a heart of flesh. That's a heart transplant. The purpose is in verse 20 that they may walk in my statutes and keep mine ordinance and do them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. If you go over to Ezekiel in chapter 36. Ezekiel and in chapter 36 verse 26. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, 
and I will give you an heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You shall keep my judgments and do them. A miracle of grace. Heart transplants. But keep in mind, this is not done at the expense of God's justice. God's justice will be satisfied. The wages of sin will be paid. Without Jesus Christ paying the penalty of our sins, this would never happen to me nor to you. We would live and die with that stony heart. But the Bible tells us that we have a substitute. We have someone that paid those wages and we are justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm going to close by going back to Jeremiah chapter 17. In verse 5, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, whose heart departeth from the Lord. Verse 7, Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. One is cursed, the other is blessed. Those that trust in the Lord. The matter is sin and how it is taken care of. And it's always by the work of God. A miracle of grace. The blood of Jesus Christ. Let's stop here and let's stand for a word of prayer. Our Father, again, we are thankful that you have the only cure the only solution for sin we're thankful that in and by your grace your people are saved from their sins we're thankful that you have removed the stony heart we're thankful for that heart of flesh that is alive and it has feelings toward god Thank you for such grace as you show toward us. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We know that without him, none of it would be possible. But we're thankful you sent your Son into this world to pay the wages of sin for your people. And I pray in his name. Amen.